And we are live with another episode of Being Human. It's going to be a good one. I'm here with Glenn Akromov. He is a team building consultant and the author of The Human Centered Team Relate, Connect, and Give Your Employees a Reason to Live. Who would not want that? Absolutely. Before we came Thanks on. for having me. Huge warm welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. So for people who are not familiar with you and your work, could you fill us in on your, your backstory, Glenn, and how Absolutely. you come to be doing what you're doing? Um, well, I started um, as, a, uh, as a seasonal maintenance worker in my hometown, and, and I start there for a good reason. Um, I worked my way through a municipal career um, from that point to being the city manager, which is the CEO of of cities. And, um, along the way I met a lot of people did, you know, got to know a lot of, uh, things, see a lot of organizations struggle, um, succeed too. So I got to know what worked and what didn't. Um, my real why though is, um, and the reason that, that, the the subtitle is what it is, is that I had a couple of people who, um, I worked with very closely, um, in the field and they were really good friends of mine and uh best work friends i would say and um the workplace that we were in was toxic and it it really uh ate both of them alive one of them i don't know where he is uh the other one um, ended up taking his own life and so that motivated me to say okay what can i do I don't want to watch friends. I don't want this to happen to me. What can I do? So I started using my skills and gaining skills. And I learned, you know, I'm pretty good at building teams and um, did that as part of my normal career. And then realized I like building teams. I like doing the, it quickly and getting the problems moving on and then hand it to somebody who can keep it sustainable um, because I like that energy of turning the ship around. And so that's when I became a consultant about eight years ago, started my own company, um, just about four years ago and, um, been doing it ever since. And it makes me happy. Um, more than anything, it's super rewarding to go into a place where people are down and struggling and leave knowing they won't do that anymore. You know, when you see someone like like this, and then you see them smiling in their eyes. It's an amazing thing to be a part of. So that's kind of the backstory, how I got here and why I do what I do. Right. Well, that's pretty extraordinary. There can't be many people who go from being you know, maintenance worker to running the whole city, right? That, that's, a, that's an extraordinary arc in itself. It, it certainly is. I, I, uh, I never intended to do that. It just started to happen, and I had the skill set to do it. Um, I would, I know, I know a very few that have done it, but there are a few, and um, I think in my case, it made me much better to understand what everybody else was going through as a leader, for sure. Yeah, it reminds me there was this something went viral recently. A, a LinkedIn profile went viral of a guy who started. Don't know if, they, if it exists in the US, but there's a very popular coffee chain in, in the UK called Pret a Manger. And he started as a coffee server and he became yeah, CEO. Yeah. You should see all the steps yeah. on his LinkedIn profile. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I bet that to me that's why he can be a, a world class CEO in my mind is that he he knows what everyone in the company is is working through and all their challenges, so he can speak to them and he understands everything isn't isn't roses oh every day. Right, right, and and tell me about this. So. I mean that's a that's a tragic opening this this situation with your colleague who took his own life. What were the main factors from a work perspective that you think contributed to him yeah getting to that stage? Well, he was a very happy-go-lucky type person um for the most part um through the the time that I knew him. And for him, all he wanted to do was be part of a, of something special and be part of a team. And regularly in this toxic work environment happens in many, if you're not with the in crowd, then you're not part of the team. And he, he did whatever he could to do that and could never, never felt like he was part of it, that he was part of what was happening. And, you know, that was a, a entire cultural failure of the organization. It wasn't just um, the leaders. You know, a lot of times nowadays we talk about, well, if, you know, people leave bad managers, which is true to some extent, but many can't or feel they can't and don't. And, and then there were some bad managers there. People didn't, you know, the uh, higher ups didn't do anything about it. There was a lot of bullying, a lot of, you know, um, a lot of negativity, and it was it was part of the culture to to trash your teammates, which was not. Mm. And for him, who was a a gentle soul, it it didn't it didn't sit well with him, and he just didn't feel good, and he never felt like he could move on. Um, from it, you know, he had a family to support and those sort of things, so he didn't he just didn't see options, and then he started self medicating, and that was that was the path to uh to what happened and the same thing happened with the other one but a little different story in that he he was driven for by excellence he was one of the best maintenance workers actually not one of he was the best maintenance worker i've ever worked with and i work with over a thousand now and um and he, he was just incredible but the organization didn't value excellence and so it started eating him on the inside. He self-medicated, um, got himself in trouble and lost his job, lost his family. Um, you know, and so I watch that happen so much in workplaces. So when I go into them, there it is. It's the same situations. Um, and sometimes it's not just the toxic manager, like I started to say. Sometimes it's the team is, is toxic. And there are a couple of people who like it that way. And so they do everything they can to keep it that way. Right, right. And, and I know there are, you know, the, I suppose you lay out in, in the book the, the many angles that we can come at, come at in order to create a human-centered team and, and a healthy culture. Um, you know, where should we start with that conversation uh, <laughs> of, of, of how we build these cultures? Well, I think it, I think it, it always starts with culture. Um, and, um, I read something, um, a couple of days ago on LinkedIn that said no one person can change the culture. I a hundred percent disagree with that. 
because I believe that every time a new human being joins a culture, the culture is changed simply by their presence. Right. And, and so um, being conscious of that, I think, is and making people understand their impact, especially leaders, your, your impact on the team is absolute. Um, and so that's a big responsibility. I always like to start um, when you're doing a culture, it starts with purpose to me. And we, you know, I talk later about the, the keys to, to a winning team. And the first one is aligning purpose. And I always think the culture starts there because as a human being, I believe, well, we all have a purpose for being here. Some of yeah. us know it. Some of us haven't figured it out. Um, and I, I think about less than 15% actually write it down. So, yeah. you know, they, they're not, they're not, it's not ingrained in them. But every organization also has a purpose. And almost every organization I know, part of that purpose is to serve other human beings in some way. Mm. So when those two don't align, that's where challenges come. And I found a municipal government, but I, I found it in private too, where people don't feel like they can leave because, because of their personal circumstances. So they, they stick in a spot that doesn't serve their purpose and, and they're miserable and they don't really know why they haven't really done that work. No one's talked to them about that. And so, um, they have that negativity. You know, I mentioned the toxic people who like it toxic. Um, most of the time, it's because they're struggling in life or, or hurting in some way and want other people to feel what they feel. So I don't right. judge them for that. I, uh, to me, it's about it, their personal struggles and they, it's part of their way to reach out. And over the last you know, 40, 50 years, not everybody, but in, in general, our society in the U.S. in particular, but probably everywhere, has ignored those cries for help. And so I think in your culture, if you, you know, when you start acknowledging those and acting on those, um, people start to, to trust, they start to believe, they start to find where they should be, and they start moving in a positive direction. And there's no organization in the world that once that momentum starts, you can't, it's, it's almost a, you can't fail no matter what you're doing. Cause you know, it's about people. That's why I said the human centered, that's why we talk human centered. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. There's a very different take on, um, people who are behaving, let's say in a toxic way. Cause a lot of the literature out there is about, you know, you've, you've got to remove those individuals. They they'll decrease the productivity of the people around them, you know, significantly. Yeah. Uh, your job is to, is to take them out of the of the system um, for the benefit of everyone else. But you're coming from a very compassionate place there and saying, well, these people are looking to be heard. They're trying to have people feel what they're feeling. So wh where do you go with that compassion? Is it is it about helping to rehabilitate that person or or do you are you compassionate and you still want to remove them from the culture? Like what's then your approach? Well, I think both, both answers are true, um, right. but when, when you, you first have to have a, a honest and open conversation with them. So as a leader, you build trust with them. And that's what I do as a, as a consultant in my roles. Mm. And once you build a little bit of trust and they know you care about them, right? Cause that's, that's why they fight so hard is because 
they're scared and they're being removed from a workplace, they don't know what's going to happen to them. So I have that conversation and it always starts with, you appear to be incredibly un unhappy here. Tell me why. Tell me what that's about. And I'm curious, I'm truly curious and I want to know because then I can, I can help them. And for some, for many, um, there's a story in the book. I talk about the, this woman who was isolated in a, in a maintenance shop where she had six visitors a day. We moved her and she fought it, but we moved her to city hall because she was a natural hostess and she thrived. She loved it. And people came to visit her. Even after one week of being there, they came, oh, I want to go see her because she's, she's such a wonderful person and she's so nice to us. And it changed the culture. That's why I say it, you can change with one person. It changed the culture in City Hall where people weren't intimidated and didn't fear coming in there because they had a hostess that, that greeted them every day. And so she was totally miscast. They wanted to get rid of her. They wanted to fire her. And I, I, we talked and, and I realized that and I watched her and I, I observed and, and the person that I sent her to that was the work unit, he's like, I'm not so sure. And I said, well, if it doesn't work out, I'll take her back and take care of it. And he, after a week, he said, you're not getting her back. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think, I think that's what it was. She was just totally miscast. And because of it, you know, she was acting out just a little bit and being a little defiant here and there, just asking for, for something different. And I think that, that's really what it is, having a conversation. When people know, a lot of times when I do that, the first reaction is relief. Someone noticed, someone heard me, someone, and then you can work, work on it. And that's what I promise them. I will find you the right place to be. It may not be in this work unit and it may not even be in this organization, but you'll be okay. And we'll find a place where you can be happy and thrive. And we have, you know, uh, I'm lucky enough to have been part of um, hundreds of those stories. Right. Right. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's a fascinating place to come from. Is, is it, it, well, what it feels to me like, it's, it's pure compassion. That, I, I would say that that's true. One of the things I learned in my journey, though, is that the, the way you show love in, in these situations is that you're really honest. If you're going to be, you know, sugarcoat things, then it's not going to help them. So I don't. And yeah. sometimes you can see the pain in their eyes when you tell them that they don't fit in and they're not in a, you know, they, they can't do the job. That's, that's a painful thing. And it's, I understand why people don't, a lot of people don't do it. But you have to do it in a way that isn't hurt. It isn't intentionally hurtful, too. You know, I, I've seen yeah. leaders get mad because they have this toxic person, like you said, and we got to remove them, and they go through this whole um, process where they kind of pull themselves, their heart out of it because they don't want to feel that way. And I, I just believe that's that's not what the solution is. And I noticed this when I was in municipal government; they used to pass employees, bad employees around and you wouldn't tell anybody right and you and you'd give them a decent reference so they could get the new job and now there's someone else's problem and that's that's what that yank them out thing is where are they going to go they need to work and and do things for their families too so 
you know, you just move the problem around and this person never heals and, and never gets better. So I would say compassionate. Yes. And never heals. So, so you see part of the process there of helping is helping them to heal. Yeah. Showing them the way a lot of, they have to do the work themselves. Um, but showing them that there is hope that they, they don't have to live the way they are and that they're, that they're good enough. Right. Cause that's what happens is you get on the wrong path and people hint at or in the secret corners are saying, well, this person isn't good enough. And we're all good enough, especially doing what we love to do and what we're good at. Right. Right. And, and how, how far do you think that responsibility goes then as a leader to help people to heal? Um, well, I think it, it goes a long way for me personally. I made a commitment to be that leader a long time ago. So I tell people when I, when, when we have worked together, I work with you for life. So if you want to call me, if you got an issue, if you got something I can help with, call me, text me, whatever, email me. And I will, I will respond and I will, will do what I can to help. And, and that's, you know, I've had people call me five years later and, and say, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm actually moving into another promotion or, um, I've got these things happening. And I, um, I remember you said this and I just need someone to talk to and I'm just there. And I, and I just think about it. it if almost every leader in the, on the planet did that, what kind of place this would be? Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting that that's the, that's the take. Yes. Because yeah, because so often in the culture, it's your, your responsibility is to everybody else and to remove, as I, well, I'm repeating myself, but to remove that, that bad apple, it's not, it's not to extend compassion and love for a lifetime to that individual to have them heal. I mean, that's, right. that's a really powerful. Yeah. I, I believe that as a leader, you, you're not always going to like your people, right? They're going to irritate yeah. you. You're going to irritate them, the whole thing. But in order to be a great leader, you have to love them. Mm. And, and it always sounds corny, but it's true. And, um, and that's, I will tell you personally, that's what challenges me. I go in and do a lot of interim work. So I go into workplaces temporarily and I take this leadership style, this, the way that I'm talking about, I do that. So when I leave, it's a mourning process for me personally, because right. I, I do, I fall in love with the team and I want them to be successful and all of them. And so when I walk out, it's, it's, it, it's gut wrenching for me. It's heartbreaking. But, um, but then I know that I've had an impact when I feel that I know I've had an impact and, and that's always been my goal, personal goal. That's been our goal as a company is to is to impact it it really is you know it's kind of sounds like a tagline and maybe it is but our our goal our our mission has always been to change the world by changing the workplace yeah and and if people are listening to that thinking that sounds like it's too much of a burden right i i Mm -hmm. i'm i'm here to do a role i cannot be responsible for each and every person's life i'm worried I would give too much of myself and I might put myself, my own sort of health at risk 
if I take that kind of a stance. What's your response to people who may be thinking that? Well, I think that's, that's fair. That's a fair concern. Um, I have done that at times where I have, you know, put my health and everything aside, but I, I learned and I teach that nothing you can, you can't give what you don't have. And so you have to be healthy and you have to have a healthy life. And, and when you're struggling, you need to have your own support system and, and it's okay to struggle no matter what level you are, because whether it's okay or not, you're going to. (laughs) So, so acknowledge that that's part of life and part of your, your journey and, and get help when you can. It, I, I, it is a fine line, but I don't take personal responsibility for everyone. It sounds like I do, but I don't. I take responsibility to f- fulfill my role as their leader when I'm leading to, to make sure that they can do, they have, uh, they're inspired and they have hope to be able to move forward. And that is not, I mean, when you look at some of the most famous people in our history, um, you know, they weren't, I, I'm, I'm thinking of Winston Churchill actually <laughs> comes to mind, not a perfect man at all, mm. but inspired and gave hope and, and, and felt some responsibility certainly to everyone in the country, but made sure that you know, he worked hard to do the right things and, and move forward and was put in the right place at the right time. And I think that's for all of us. But I, I, I would say if, if you want to be a leader and you truly know in your heart that you are, you're going to need to take on some of these things to be a great leader. And, and your people will, the rewards are high. I want to be really clear about that. It's not all it's not all negative. You know, you're having these tough conversations and everything, but when you see someone go from um, surviving to thriving and you know you, you had a part in it, it, it energizes you. It gives you, you know, the desire to do it again. And, and those things, not everybody gets to feel that. Mm. Le- leaders do. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about culture, and so it sounds to me like one of the things you're saying is taking this loving stance as a leader to each and every person you lead is an important facet to creating Mm -hmm. a a healthy culture. What else? As far as culture goes? As far as culture goes. Yeah. Um, I, I also think you want to be able to set up a couple of things. One is a communication culture. And how you communicate. And that's always different depending on what work unit you are, what organization you're in. Everyone has that little thing. But setting up a way where you can communicate, you can, you can have comedy, you can you know, have a little bit of jesting going on, if that's what the culture calls for. Or if it calls for being super serious, then you, you know when you have to be and when you're not. And so I think um, but it's most important to have key words that that um, that trigger tough conversations. So when you say a few, th- you know, this a certain sentence or a certain group of words, 
the other person knows, oh, we're going to have a serious conversation because there's some conflict or something going on. So that, you know, it's a warning, you know, a, a type of culture that allows you to do that. And, and a group of words that knows, hey, we're going to relax and it's just, you know, it's time to be creative and those sort of things. And the most successful organizations have that. They create that. And it's different everywhere. Um, the other, another part I think is really um, every workplace has uh, what I call unwritten rules. You have the written rules, which are everyone knows and you study and you get, you know, you got to sign the paper and all that stuff. But the unwritten rules are created to protect people or the team from something. Usually, originally, usually a bad manager or a bad actor in the unit. It's easy to corrupt those because they're not written down. So when people who are struggling or, or want to take advantage of them, they start using those unwritten rules to protect themselves or insulate themselves. And um, the, the big thing is to bring those to light. Those are really challenging because um, the only way you know that you broke them is once you break them, <laughs> right? You have to break them yeah. to find out. Yeah. And then there's, and then the team will punish you for that. Um, and a lot of times leaders who aren't involved in that, right? They're not going to punish the leader for breaking that rule. So the leaders, a lot of times, especially if you come into a new work unit, you're unaware of them. And so, um, big thing is to bring them to light. When I do that, I look and I see, I, I see the person who's using a corrupting them, duck their head and turn away and go, uh Oh, I've been found out. Um, and then once you bring them to light, there's a reason that they were put in in the first place. So let's, let's find out what that is and fix that. Um, and so those, that's something I focus on, uh, regularly. And then the, the next part, I think the last, Big one for me, culture-wise, is setting up uh, ground rules, values. You know, reason. You know how we how we not only communicate but how we behave, and and that requires the whole team. That is not the leader deciding that. Once the whole team is involved in that process and and agrees to it, they're much more likely to live it. And you're we're talking about the supervisor's impact if the team is self. Uh, regulating, which you can do when you put these values in that they've committed to, your workload goes down. <laughs> your stress yeah. level goes down. Yeah. So, um, and originally that's why, how I came up with it. How do I lower my stress level? And when I did that, I realized, wow, they're self-regulating. When it gets to a certain point, they come talk to me because it's appropriate. And, and then I take action, but I don't have to worry about managing that day to day because they do it. So that, I think when you put all those things in place, the, the culture starts to really thrive. People feel empowered to, to own their workspace, and mm. they do. Right. So it's the purpose. It's the, it's the communication norms. It's surfacing these hidden rules. And mm. I'm, I'm intrigued by that. So could you give an example of a, of a hidden rule and where you've encountered one and, and how you've addressed it? Yeah, one of the workplaces I did, I worked in as an in multiple interim roles a uh, year or two ago. Their uh, one of their written rules was, um, "I will I will complain about everything, but I will take no action because it won't do any good." And people who 
who tried to take action got punished. Right. And so when I went in there, I went, I looked around and, and that was the first one I announced to them. I said, well, you have an unwritten rule around here, everybody. And there's 80 people in the room where um, you're going to complain about whatever comes up, but you will take no action in fixing it. And you think that it won't because nothing will happen. I'm here to tell you that it will. And I'll prove that. But also, um, complaining is not going to be the, the thing that we do anymore. So I gave them two weeks to complain. I said, complain all you want. <laughs> and as soon as the two weeks are up, I don't want to hear it. And we're not going to hear it anymore. We're going to focus on fixing the problems. And to the credit of the entire unit, that's what they did. They complained for two weeks about everything. Right. But, and, and I got to listen, right? So I got to hear what some of the problems were. And then um, the two weeks I announced, okay, that's over with. And I had multiple solution people in my office after the meeting, giving me solutions to some of the problems they thought about it. They, you know, we just changed the paradigm there and they, I've been thinking about this for 10 years and I think we can do this. And so, and, and if I, if, if I thought it was going to work or worth a try, I did it. And, and that place turned around, um, in months. And they did it. I didn't. <laughs> right. I just yeah. showed them a different path and then they took off with it and it was fabulous. And there, I had told them, and I truly believe this, I had told them that they could be, they were a maintenance unit. And I said, you can be the best in the state of Washington, which will make you one of the best in the country. You can do that. You have the talent, you have the resources to do that. And they now, they took that to heart and they're now on that path, um, they might have already accomplished it. So to me, again, all I did was point a vision to them and they said, yeah, you know what? We want that. And they made it happen. So, and yeah. it all started with, with expressing an unwritten rule. Right. And then you, you sort of pivoted into vision, which is your, yep. your sec second key, right? In the book. Yeah. Yeah. And then, absolutely. And, then, and you mentioned critical mass in relation to Division. Talk talk about that. Yeah, I I think that's the um, well, I think the big thing for me is that that's part of your job as a leader is to set a vision. So I mm. I set that vision, um, and we we put it. I put a slogan to it, and I use the slogan regularly. But I realized long time ago that if the vision stays mine it doesn't happen. And so the example we just used, I, I gave them a way to move in that direction and they, they took it on and said, you know what, that's my vision. I want to be the best and at what I'm doing. And they took it on as teams. They took it on as one unit and then they took it on as individuals. Now, not everybody did at first, but so many of them, like you're talking critical mass, so many of them did and declared that that's what I want, that um, the rest were, were dragged along and actually not dragged along. They, they acknowledged, okay, it can be hard work, but I, I actually want to be part of the winning team too. Um, and again, I didn't try to control that. I just put it out there and then let them take it where they may.
and made sure it stayed within the boundaries of good taste and, and, you know, solid culture and was sustainable. And, and I think that that's really what it is. If a lot of times as leaders, we want to, we want ownership of that vision and we really can't, we only get it for a few minutes when we come up with it and then we got to let it go. And what is that process of letting go? Because I mean, this is because, because in my work as a, as a coach and consultant, we come across the same thing where the, the leader may have the big vision and, and a common frustration is, you know, m- my team aren't bought into this or my team aren't getting behind this. Yeah. What, what is the process for having them take ownership? Well, I, I think it, it is, um, it is letting them know what's in it for them. I think that's the first thing, right? Is well, what's in it for me? Well, I spelled that out for this work unit. Um, you, you act like a champion, you'll be treated like one. Doesn't matter what your job is. People will treat you well. They started to see that happen in, in a place where it wasn't happening before. When it's just like professional athletes, right? When you, when you are at the top of your game, you get paid more. And I, I put that out there for them. You want to make more money in this profession and you love this profession, then be great at it. You'll make more money. Um, you get, so, so we've sold prestige and, and honor and we've still sold more money, which means they help their families and everything, which is why they're there in the first place. Um, that's why most of us, you know, put in the hours we do is so that we can take care of our family and do the things we enjoy doing outside of work. Um, but I also think there's a way you have to bring it together. So in this unit, I, I created a slogan, um, and it, and it was, it came from them because they had told me this many times. Um, they had complained the fact that they always get dumped, work gets dumped on them because they can get it done. And so I took that and I changed it to, we are maintenance and we can fix anything. And when they took, and so I said that after every, at the end of every meeting, I said that. And so I started saying, you know, at the end, I I would say, and, and then they started saying it. Right. We are maintenance. And that was my handoff. That was my handoff of the vision to them. And then I, and then afterwards, after that, I didn't say it. Either they did or one of the other leaders in the team did. So I made sure it went away from me. I let go of it. I physically in front of them, let go of the vision and gave right. it to them. And, and, and they you ritualized it. it, right? You turned this into yes. a ritual. Rit- rituals, a- absolutely. Um, and and it, it became that way. Many of the work units used it every day the same way. Um, and um, it just it just took off. And... I wrote it, we wrote it down. I had it everywhere, right? Um, but, but if but it hadn't, point, it's not you writing it down, right? Because a ton of people will put statements and they'll have it on posters and they'll have true, it written down true. everywhere and, and nobody ever takes it up, right? There's right. something else you're doing than just having it printed out. Yeah. Well, and I think we printed it out afterwards and I mm. hand wrote it, right? I didn't, I didn't polish it up or anything like that. And it was in my office. It was hanging in a, I did it on one of those big sticky note pads and I right. put it on the wall and I just let it sit there. 
And um, because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to live it too. I had to live it as well. And so when something needed to be fixed that it was my job to fix, I thought the same thing and I went and made sure it happened. And, um, and it, to me, it was just an amazing, um, amazing thing. And I've used that same technique, never the same words, right? Cause every team is different yeah. and has a different focus, but I've used that process many times and it, it does work. And, and you can't just do it right away, right? You can't walk into a new team and go, all right, we're going to do this. You have to earn their respect and trust and earn, earn the, the permission to be their leader. Mm. And I think that's something that's missed by many leaders. Your position means nothing if you don't earn, if they don't say, you know what, I acknowledge that you're my leader. And they need to do that in whatever way that, that is appropriate for them. And once they do that, you now can make those, those changes um, and move that's forward. And I think that's something to remember. Yeah. Because quite often we'll see these culture change programs and they're, they're, kind of, they're, they're rolled out on a schedule, right? Yeah. We're going to consult. Yeah. We're, going to, we're going to figure out the best sort of set of phrases for our values and our vision. And, and then we're going to communicate it. And, but in many of those scenarios where people explain the process, they don't, they don't have a step for, have I yet got permission to lead here, right? Right. And it's the, in, in my mind, it's always the first step. I just started a work working in a new unit uh, a couple of weeks ago. So I'm two weeks in, two, two plus weeks in, and that's all I'm working on. I'm listening. I'm talking to them. You know, I, I do one-on-one -on -one meetings with every person, always have. And um, many of them have said, I've always wanted this to happen. And it's the first time I've met with a manager um, in my entire career one-on-one -on -one. i'm like wow um and so right there that person i earned i earned some respect with them right away and i always i always tell them that and i think this is true hey i'm i'm not i'm not asking you to respect me or trust me i'll learn it i'll learn them both and then i go about proving that i'm going to earn it and once i do then i now have their permission to lead and yeah. some people that happens really fast you know, I've had a couple that I've won over already in two weeks. And then there are others who are going to take me a couple of months. They're good. They're very standoffish and rightfully so. They've been, they've been wounded before. And so I'm going to find out why and how and, and find out how to connect with them. Yeah. And then when you, presumably then when you feel like you've got permission to lead from a critical mass, then, then you can start with the vision. Yeah. And, and I, I let that vision come to me as it needs to. Like right now, I, this new work unit, I know kind of where technically I want to take some things and, you know, I'm starting to understand the people and understand the impacts to them. You know, we talk about in the book, external forces, I'm understanding those, yeah. but, um, but the vision is not, it's not ready for me to put out there because I don't know what it is yet. Um, you know, I, I shared the, the other unit, it was, you know, become the best of the best because they could this unit. That's not what drives them. That's not what's going to drive them. They, they want to provide so far. It looks to me like they're, they really want to provide excellent service 
and they want their community to to um, to look better and to to operate better. And so it's that's where their that's where their focus is. They know that what they do is important, which is not always the case. So I don't need to sell that their job's important. You know, that's not going to be part of the vision of this unit. Most of the time it is. And this one, I don't need to do that because they've got it. So uh, it's, it's always an interesting process. And about six, eight weeks, that'll start to become clear to me. And that's about the time that I get the critical mass to, to have permission to be their leader. Right. Um, the other the other concept you, you introduce is this idea of defining defining the season. Yeah. Don't yeah. worry about that. <laughs> sure. Well, one of the things I noticed in a municipal career is that you can't everyone would look at it and and I had a, a guy who said this to me in my early career. We got full time jobs together at a city and he said, Once I clear probation, I'm cruising to a thirty year career. We're we're two months in, right? <laughs> I'm like, wow. And then I started to realize, well, you know, you can't perform. Everyone talks about performing at a consistent level. Well, we as human beings aren't consistent. It's not how we're designed. And so I realized that we, we need to, we need to be able to have a season. And I, I took this from sports. I played sports, you know, my whole life. And I realized there is a season. It's easy to define what a win and a loss is in a, you know, any sports season. But um, it's harder in a workplace, but you still need to train. You still need to rest. You still need to have an off season. Some applications are harder, you know, finance and some of the others, they do things consistently like pay the bills and all that, but they have a budget season and they call it a budget season. So you, you start thinking about, okay. You need to define what that season is so your people know when they've got to go hard and when they can, can go less hard. Um, you can't go hard for 30 years. So my whole thing was that means your performance actually is less than it can be. Yeah. Um, and so that's that. So each, and it was, it's easy in maintenance also. It's very easy for a maintenance season because you have your growing season and your non growing season. So that becomes. And that, and that becomes your construction season because when the weather's good, you're doing construction. So, you know, here in the U.S., it's from um, most of the work units. We talk about March 15th to October 15th. That's your season. And my expectation as the leader is you go as hard as you can throughout that season. Do your best every day. Once we get to October 15th, we gear, gear back. And we clean up our equipment and we fix it and we heal ourselves because we pushed hard and we start training from April 15th back to March. We're going to do our training. So I don't mind if people are out for three days going to do training to get themselves you know, trained up on, on being better. I want them to heal their bodies in maintenance. You do get your body gets beat up pretty good. So you've got all of those dynamics that, um, that come into a season. And, um, I also, you need to have a time to celebrate how well you did. And I talk about that's, that's later in the book, but it, mm. in order to celebrate, you got to have a beginning and an end. <laughs> and so we create one with a season. Um, I have always done a half, half season event as well. 
to let everybody know, hey, we made it halfway. I know you're starting to get tired, but hey, we're halfway. We, you know, October's not that far away. Let let's let's, you know, take a day off, take a deep breath, and then um, recommit to to finishing up a good season. And um, and it also allows you know the leader to to give pep talks and to do halftime speech type things and all that sort of stuff to motivate and inspire. Um, and help them understand how important their work is. And so, um, I also do the same thing at the beginning where we talk about, okay, we're going to start going hard on March 15th. I start talking about it in January. Okay. Get yourself ready. Get all your final training in, you know, take, take a day, extra day or two off, get ready to go for the season. And, and people actually enjoy that process because mm-hmm. they know there's a beginning and an end. And- and how does that translate then into knowledge work where there isn't necessarily a natural cycle to, to fit a it, season into? It, I, I, I think it, it, you can do it in short spurts, right? So you can, you can do it project-based. So, so I think that's a big part of it. You could have, you know, I, I think about some, some of the technology people that are inventing things or creating new programs they have a project base. So that can be their season. Um, you, you can, like I used in finance, not every, you know, there are routine jobs that are very routine in, in, in nature, but they, um, and there's some people who just love the routine and are fantastic at it, but they still need to have a beginning and end. So you can do it by the month, you know, use quarters, right? You can, you know, we have the financials, you can do the quarter thing. You can, break it up any way that makes sense for your team. Like I used finance. Finance has always told me, well, we can't do that. I go, well, you have a budget season, right? Well, yeah, but well, you focus on that. Um, and as long as you create a beginning and an end and some, some measurement of what success looks like, as I talk about defining winning, if you define what winning is and then you define the timeline, that's really what the season is. So then you can say, we won, and this was our season. And, and as long as you do those things, and then you take a moment to take a deep breath and say, we have an off season, even if it's two weeks. Hey, we start the next project two weeks from now. Let's, let's re-gear up, do your training, do your healing, whatever you need to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and, and I suppose what plays into this is, is debriefing. And right in here, one of your keys is debriefing yeah. constantly. Yeah. So that's what well, I get. Well, talk about debriefing constantly. Well, I think that's, you know, you, you, in order, we talk about culture, but you need to put that in your culture that it's debriefing. It's not, it, it starts out very formal, right? We look at debriefing where we get in a room and we talk about every little de. we talk about the details and we say, did you know what went well, what did, but to me, that's, that's really all it needs to be is three things, three questions. What, what did I do? What went well? What didn't? And what am I going to do different next time? And you can mm-hmm. do that with every task, every task. So I just posted on LinkedIn. Okay, what went well? What didn't? And then what am I going to do different next time to make it better? And you can, you can easily, that's how you learn. You identify what my learning is in this thing. And when, when you get everybody doing it, 
they stop asking the questions in a formal way. It just comes to their mind and they'll start going, boy, that went really well. I, I can't think of anything that didn't go well. I'm going to do it just that way next time. That's all it takes. And once you, imp- once you put that in there and everyone's doing it, then your, co- your company is constantly growing. You're not getting stagnant. When a new process or something shows up, you ask yourself those questions or, or at times the team will ask each other and then you fix it right away. And so you're much more nimble and in today's world, you've got to be, you've got to be able to change on a dime and that's how you do it. And, and that's another one of those let go moments for a leader. You don't need to be involved in that if you do it right. And right. they just, they just change it and you give them permission to fix it. Yeah. And that's always one of my core things that I tell people when I come in, that's, that's actually one of our company, um, expectations, um, is fix it. If there's a problem, fix it. You have full permission and authority to do so. And I think that's the big part of, of that debrief piece. You have to give them the permission to fix it once they debrief it. And that makes total sense because if, if there's any sense in their mind that if I'm going to go through this effort of analyzing my actions and then I've got every chance of being told I can't fix it based on my insight, well, we're going to do that right. like a couple of times, right? And then I'm never going to do it again. That's exactly what happens. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. Why should I is the question they ask. <laughs> and, and the answer is always, I shouldn't, so I won't. And then you're headed down that path to toxicity. Yeah. And it's, I mean, in my experience with companies, that is so prevalent. Uh, yeah. You go yeah. into any situation, you know, and, and, and you give them a chance to air their frustrations. And so the first question you naturally ask is, well, have you suggested that change? And they're like, yeah, of course I did. But I stopped suggesting <laughs> changes like 10 years ago. Right. And, and I just, to me, that, that, is it's tragic <laughs> is what that is <laughs> for them personally for the company i mean are you kidding me you could have solved this problem 10 years ago and you still how do you how are you surviving let alone being successful yeah and to be fair that's in companies that are yeah le- le- less um prone to external pressures but um right even right. even if the sort of the business survives it's yeah it, it does eat away at the happiness and the fulfillment of every individual when they don't have that. And, that and it reflects, yeah. And it reflects to your customer experience, no yeah. matter what role, what company you're in. I mean, in, in local government where I've spent a lot of my career, customer experience is what it, what your business is. Yeah. And it, and if you're disgruntled and you're frustrated because you can't fix this problem that the, that affects the customers and they complain about it every time for 10 years, you're listening to a, you're listening to a complaint you can't do anything about and you know the solution, mm-hmm. you can't fix it. I mean, the frustration level just woof, yeah. through the roof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose local government is synonymous with poor customer services. So I had to it, say it. But so, it uh, well, I think, I think you're right. It doesn't have to be, but I think you're, you're right because, they be, because in that situation we just talked about, now you're going to focus on you. I'm just going to get through the day. I'm going to focus yeah. on me. And so the customer feels that and says, they don't care about me. And, 
And even if they do in their heart, they're, they can't do anything about it. So they just give up. And so when you, but when you light that fire back up, the customers know it. And that's mm-hmm. what I talked about earlier, the champion thing. When you behave like that and you behave like a champion and you're providing world-class service, they will, um, they will reciprocate at the highest levels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you talk about low performance uh, as your seventh key. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what do you mean by flow performance? Well, we started to talk a little bit about I don't, I, human beings aren't consistent. They aren't created to be, right? We, mm-hmm. we go in cycles. And I studied through, you know, first my son, because my, you know, his stepmother said, uh, he can do anything for six weeks. So I went, Okay, so let me watch him. And I started to realize there was a pattern. So then I looked at myself and then I looked at my team and I realized we all have separate patterns, but it's usually on a six-week type cycle. And I experimented with, you know, how to, can I manipulate that was my first question. Can I make that, make that work for the team? And so first thing I did was try to get everybody on the same cycle. And I was successful. The problem was, is that we all went way up and way down. And, and so I'm like, wow, that didn't work. So then I realized you, if we try to be consistent, we're here. If we, if we let everybody move up and down in their own cycle, but we're trying to make, you know, the, the team kind of cover each other, then you end up being at a much higher performance level as a unit. And so that's really the performance flow is knowing what every, where everybody is in that flow, knowing where you are personally. And, and because you, the way it works is you, you kind of ramp up and, and, and for two weeks, and then you have what I call a performance plateau where you're up there and, and anybody can, can think about it is, you know, you'll, you'll be doing stuff and you're producing a ton of work, whatever you're doing and you're doing it and it's going well, everything's just working perfectly. And then all of a sudden, a week later, you can't, you know, you can't type, you can't do whatever you're working on. You're like, why is this? It's because you're in the down cycle because as as a human being, you need to rest and take a break. And when you don't, then it gets worse, right? You're pushing that cycle and it gets worse and worse and worse. And because you have the, you have the, the downturn. And when you get into that trough of non, of low performance, the farther you try to push yourself on the plateau, the farther down you'll go. So you can consciously do that. And I have done that. I, I, I kind of manage my stuff by that if, when I can. I'm scheduling these podcasts that way. When I'm in my, I, I feel like I'm at a plateau in my performance right now. It's, it's, I'm going to end in about the end of the week. And so, um, I know that I want to be on these things when I'm at the top of my game. Right. right. So, so that's, that's what I've done is I try to schedule them when I know I'm, I'm in that plateau somewhere. So I may do three or four or five in a row in a, in a two week period. And then I won't do one for three weeks because, because I'm working into that plateau. And I also know I can extend it, but the trough's going to be deeper. So if I'm getting ready to go on a vacation, and I'm going somewhere where I know I'm just going to relax and disengage from everything, then I'll push it. I'll push it out because I know I'll be fine. I'm, I'm okay if I'm sitting on a beach somewhere um, and I'm not at the top of my game. Right. So, so it's a self-awareness tool, 
but it's also a team team type tool. And I encourage everybody to look at it, watch yourself, document it, you know, say, hey, when it, this, these things are going well, these aren't and kind of just document it and you'll see that you have a cycle. Then you need to be okay with it. Right. Yeah, because you can imagine well, my immediate instinct is like, how could I how could I game it, right? Like how could I just right. stay high all the time? Right. And and you want to, but you can't. And so and I was, you know, I tried every way to cheat the system because I thought mm. I can find the cheat code, I can do this. But I realized I really can't and I really don't want to, right? What's what's right. wrong with having having a weekend where you just relax? Yeah. And and just do fun things that you want to do. That's what you're working so hard for. So um and I found you can manage a team that way. And I do when we were talking earlier about this team unit, I'm starting to figure out who's where on on the scale um and where they are in their performance flow so I can start helping them, you know, manipulate it and understand that, you know, the supervisor in particular, hey, you may not want that person doing this task during that week because they're they're about to fall off a little bit and and not be able to perform at the high level but i think self-acceptance there is the biggest thing you know okay i all of a sudden i can't type or and that's where it shows up that's one that's why i say that it's one of my show up i can pound out typing and i'm doing great and then all of a sudden bleh, I, I type and i look at the words and there's none of them spelled right i'm like okay yeah. here we are this is a signal to me that i'm not I'm, I'm headed down to where I need to rest and break. Yeah. That's it's, it's surrender, right? That that's the word that comes yeah. to me. It's that willingness. And it's something I'm yeah, learning to be comfortable with is, is, is to surrender, yeah. surrender I, to sadness, surrender I, to exhaustion and just yeah. like allow my ego to accept that the body's tired. Right. I, I like that. I definitely like that surrender that that's a great way to put it. Yeah, um, and interesting as well as you as you talk about the, the the that's fully accepted in the sports yeah. realm, you know, where we manage performance to a greater degree than perhaps anywhere else. Right. So you know, why not why not import some of that thing? And if, and that's high yeah. performance is what we're after. Right, and I think th I think we we all are because I believe we all want to be on a winning team. We all want to be successful, mm. whatever that means to us individually. And so, finding the ways to be able to do that um, to the best of our ability, whatever that means. I mean, there's we all have. It goes back to your individual purpose. You know, I, I believe that's like your fingerprint. It's different for everybody in some way, form, or fashion, and and how you, you know how you manage your cycle and how you get to feel like your success, because we're all, you know, that's another thing. I, I think, I think, try to think abundantly and we all have the ability to be successful and no one really is in our way of doing that except for mostly ourselves. Yeah. 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 That makes, that makes total sense. Now you're an owner of racehorses. I am. <laughs> yep. I don't know if that's plural actually right now, but uh, tell me, yeah, tell me what you've learned um, in the in the domain of racehorse ownership. Well, well, I think the first thing was the word you used earlier: is surrender. Um, the horse is a is not a machine. They have their own personalities, um, which, as you get to learn, is is a way positive thing. They uh, 
most of the time, unless they're a jerk, which we've owned at least one of them. <laughs> that was not a nice horse, but um, didn't have a great personality. But but you also learn that they they're going to run when they run, and that um, when they're ready, they you know you run them, and when you um, when they're not, you don't. That you do have a responsibility to take care of them, um, and that they will give back an amazing amount. Um, I mean, when my mom, uh, passed away, I went down to the barn and it wasn't even one of our horses. It was someone else's that I, I connected with and I'm just petting him and feeding him carrots. And, and he, and he put his, put his head on my shoulder and he just knew that I was struggling. And mm-hmm. so I went down to see him for every day for weeks and it helped me get through it. And I, and the horses are that way. They're just very intuitive. Um, to humans' energies, and they really want to to please you, and they love thoroughbreds. Love to run. That's what they love to do. Right. And so they're they're thriving when that's happening. And um, you know, people ask me, "Well, do they really know they won?" Oh yeah, yeah. They they they, they won. There's a famous uh, horse uh, called Zenyatta. Years ago, she won all of her races until her last one and lost. And she was headed towards the winner's circle. She thought it was really close race. She lost by like an inch and she was headed to the winner's circle. She's like, no, I belong there. That's where I go. And, and, um, and it was her last race. But I think to me, they know that you can see them. They know when they win, they know when they've been successful, just like we do. And so, but to me, it was the big thing is surrender and, and, you, we started talking about compassion earlier, yeah. right? And and I think that's what the horses have that in abundance mm-hmm. that just makes them an incredible uh, species. And I, um, I when I started in in getting into that, I didn't experience that, um, but once I did, it it changes how I I see how how it is, and it's why I enjoy going and and being a part of it. Yeah. And, and as and as 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 you speak, Glenn, I'm. I suppose what I'm so present to is is your your capacity to love, and and I I just feel the strength of your your heart and and I'm curious, like, have you always had this deep capacity to to be a loving presence to love? Is this something you've had to develop? I had to expose it. I would say as a youth and in my younger years, I, I had it. Um, but I, you know, some of the world tells you to hide that. And, you know, my dad was a police officer. So, you know, there was a long time in our family, we hid our emotions and we went through a, a family experience, um, that taught us all to open up. And we kind of had a rebirth as a family. Um, I had never, my dad tell, told this story before he passed away and that he called it the two hugs. And um, it was the first time as adults that um, he and I had hugged. And I was 40. And um, I asked him for a hug. And then that's how, why he called it two hugs. I hugged him, he hugged me. 
and it changed the way our family operated. And so we still, to this day, don't separate as a family unless we hug each other. Right. And, um, and so I, so going back to it, I, I, I knew I had it. I never understood really what, what, it, what it was and how to use it until I, we went through that experience. And then I realized I'm going to express that to the world. And if people reject it, they reject it. I don't care. And, um, and I was taught that by my mom. My mom was that, don't worry about what people think, just be you. Um, so I had to learn to use it and learn to right. express it. And, and many people are not comfortable with it at first. Right. And I, and, and I wasn't at times, right. Because, you know, I'm brought up to be, be a tough guy and, and you can still be this way and be a tough guy. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> yeah. So, and I, and I learned that. So. Yeah. I mean, and that's what's, um, it doesn't in any way diminish the sense of your authority or your gravitas or any of these things. It, it enhances it. it, it right. Uh, right. That's what I'm also very present to. It's, uh, yeah. And, that, it, and that's what I had to learn. That's the part I had to learn is that it, it, does, it does enhance everything I'm doing. Um, mm. and, and in some ways, it sets me apart. Sadly, because I think everyone has this capacity but yeah, or most everyone. So, and so if I can have someone on, you know, to, to see that and start doing it in their own life, just one person, then I'm, I've done my job. I've done my work. And, and as you started to express it and show it, as you say, it, and, and perhaps you, you yourself felt discomfort or you noticed in others, there was a discomfort around it. Was there anything you told yourself or did you take any, any particular approach just to allow yourself to kind of expand this, this lovingness around? Um, well, I, I had to, I, I felt like I had to, you know, again, like we talked about when you go into a work unit or you work, you're with people, there has to be some understanding of who you are before you start expressing that in, right. in the, you know, so there's different levels. So I learned that there opportunities will show up for you to express that caring and that, that love for people. Right. And so you look for the opportunities and they start slow. They start, you know, on the surface a little bit, and then you just start to show them. Um, and, and when people open up to me, you know, about their struggles or whatever, and they do, then I get to show that back to them. And what I realized, you know, as I was going through the process and, and, and doing the work that I do, I realized for some people, um, just like my story, I'm one of the only ones that they're getting that from in their entire life at that time. And, um, you know, like we said earlier, I don't see that as my whole responsibility to take care of them or be, you know, that role for them, but to show them that it's out there and that you can find it, um, is pretty powerful. And I, mm. um, and I've every workplace, I find a couple that, you know, they're isolated in their world and certainly coming out of what we had, you know, 
few years ago that that was really prevalent and um, some people hadn't talked to people in an emotional expressive way in in two years yeah. and so when they started doing that to me and i could sh show them that hey there's there are people out there who will listen their compassion and will care about you you know it it allows them to open up to receive that not only from me but from any anybody in the world and then there you go they're they're off and 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 living a, a the life they want to live yeah yeah no that makes that makes sense and as you speak you spoke earlier about giving people hope but like a bit of hope and that was part of your responsibility and i, I can see now that demonstrating this love gives them hope that they can find that loving connection elsewhere right and 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 for some people it's they realize that they're they're worthy of love right sad as that sounds but yeah you know some people are going through a lot of things that they that they can find proof that they feel like they're not and so when someone shows it that where you don't expect it in the workplace then they'll and, and in a leader they're you know it, it changes their their understanding of themselves a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It causes a transformation inside mm -hmm. them. Yeah. Yep. It's it's a two-way yeah, exchange, yeah. And and I want to I I said it before, but I want to be clear. I I get I get so much out of this process. Mm -hmm. You know, they every every religion every talks about when you give you get and yeah. that is you know i get much more than at least i feel like i get much more than i give and it just empowers me to give more um, yeah and, and gives me the energy to do it right because <laughs> it's, it's you know there's some days the energy does wane <laughs> right <laughs> yeah and uh yeah, it's interesting. Even as I laugh at you saying that, right? It's it's my own nervousness around like accepting that. Yeah, of course we wane. Yeah, right. our, yeah. our power isn't like a hundred percent all the time. No, uh, no. So I mean, are. even in the video games, right? You got to build your power, do a big activity, and then you got to go yeah. go back and build your power again, or do it as you move. Yeah, lose a few lives, you got to build your lives back up. Yeah, that's right. Same thing. Same thing in everyday life. As Stephen Covey said, you've got to sharpen the saw. Yeah, 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 yeah. And again, relates to love. Can we love ourselves? Love ourselves yeah. through the triumph and the rest and the healing and yeah, stay yeah. in tune with what we need moment to moment. And that may be the most difficult thing is to love ourselves as much as we try to love others. Right. Yeah. And yeah, and and and, it, and I'm get, but I'm I'm presuming when you had that that hug with your dad that that fostered your ability to love yourself as as well as others. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I mean, it was the fact that I asked, right? I mean, I stressed about asking, right? And and of course, you think about it. You know, my dad was always there. Um, you know, I tell stories in the book. The book's dedicated to him and my mom because they were always there for us. Um, but we just hadn't done that. And when I allowed myself to express that, you're right. It it just it changed how I saw things and saw myself. 
I think the thing about that makes it different for each of us as individual is we know all our own thoughts, right? You don't know anybody else's <laughs> except how they express them, but you know all the secrets. So you're like, well, you know, nobody knows how bad I am. Well, yeah, they're, they're, they have the same con- sort of thoughts, but they also don't know how good you are. Yeah. When you look at it that way. So, you know, you get to choose whether you choose abundance or scarcity. And I, you know, I always try to, to go to abundance and I've been lucky enough to be given a lot of abundance in my life and an abundant capacity to do this work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe that's the note to end it on. I mean, um, yeah. Yeah. Seek and you shall find, right? If we, if we, if we live in this expectation of abundance or acceptance of abundance. Yeah. And it shows up. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of understanding about that in, in science and elsewhere about the understanding abundance and, and, you know, there's a lot of folks out there talking about, um, manifesting and that's kind of what it is, is when you expect abundance, the universe tends to give that to you. When you expect scarcity, it gives that to you too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you have enough self-love to accept it in when it shows up, right, it, then, yeah. Th- th- yeah. then it compounds. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, Glenn, this has been amazing. I've been so touched, um, moved by, by what you've shared and who you're being and, yeah, the message you've got. It's, uh, it's been fantastic. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it a lot, and uh, um, I appreciate being able to be here today. Wonderful. And thank you for getting up so early (laughs) to have this conversation. Sure. Uh, Yeah. That's been awesome. I can't wait to, yeah, to get it out there onto, onto all the other platforms. So, um, we, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have it out there, uh, on, on all the channels shortly. And we'll put a link to the book again. Awesome. The human centered team relate, connect, and give your employees a reason to live by then uh, a crow glenn chromov uh for people who, who want to send, search it um anywhere else you'd send them your, your own organization as well Matt, perhaps uh, share share the link for people who want to connect with you yeah we we have a website that's at acromoff.com and we you know you can find a lot, a lot of the stuff we're talking about there um we 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 are on linkedin um we we um Post stuff there regularly, and uh, we have the the book is on Amazon, but it's also at thehumancenteredbook.com. Thehumancenteredbook.com. Great. We'll put all those links into the show notes. Okay. Well. All right. Thanks once again, Glenn. This has been fantastic. Thank you. Thanks again. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Humans human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.